Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles then to the letter to the Romans? We've just begun this series through uh, the letter or the epistle to the Romans. Last week we began with Paul's greeting, and today we're going to uh, consider his preface. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Romans chapter 1, and we'll be reading uh, verses 8 through 17 together. Romans 1, verses 8 through 17. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Let's give it our attention. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been in conversation with someone when you sort of randomly stumbled upon something that they were really passionate about? Um, It could be anything, right? From cooking to computers, dancing to disc golf, gardening to golf, whatever floats their boat. But you you can tell uh, when you've hit on that thing that they're passionate about because they immediately brighten up, uh, they, their expression changes, you find that they know a lot about that subject, and you see that it animates them. They love it. They can't help but talk about it. They're eager. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It's like the delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's why newly engaged couples can't help but express their love for each other over and over again. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. It's why readers are constantly telling people about this new book that they just read. 
It's why golfers go on about the great course they just played. It's why fan forums exist so that people can geek out about their common interests, whether it's college football or the apologetics of Cornelius Van Til. When we really love something, we are excited about it. We are passionate about it. We want to talk about it. What are the things you're passionate about? What are the things that get you really excited and animated? What are the things that preoccupy your thoughts? For the Apostle Paul, there was one preoccupying passion, and that was the gospel. For Paul, the message of the gospel, this message about what God had done, what he had accomplished for his people in their salvation, how he had won their victory over sin and death, it excited him, it animated him, it motivated him, it drove him to the ends of the earth to talk about it. He was eager to preach the gospel. It was all he wanted to talk about from that very first day when he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. That day when his life was transformed, he would spend the rest of his life talking about Jesus talking about his passion for the good news. And you can hear that enthusiasm right at the outset of this letter even. In the very first words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And just as we heard that enthusiasm last week in his greeting, we're going to hear it again today in this preface, in verses 8 through 17. And I want you to hear it. I want you to pay attention to Paul's passion for the gospel, but I don't just want you to hear his passion. I want you to understand why he's so passionate about it. And it's my hope and it's my prayer this morning that as we look at Paul's preoccupying passion for the gospel, that it will actually be infectious, that it will be contagious and that we will catch it, that the Lord would use his humble servant's passion for the gospel to spark in us a greater passion for this good news of our salvation. And so as we, as we consider this preface together, let me draw out for you three things that we find here just to help guide our thinking. First, we find this gospel-focused prayer in verses 8 through 10 as Paul gives the Romans some insight, a window into his prayer life for them. Secondly, we find a gospel-focused passion in verses 11 through 15 as Paul tells us about his passion and his eagerness to preach the gospel and to see its fruitfulness in the lives of the Roman Christians. And then finally, we'll see this gospel-focused power as Paul tells us why he is so passionate about the gospel. This gospel prayer, this gospel passion, and this gospel power. First, consider the prayer with me in verses 8 and 10. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. There's two main parts to this prayer. 
Uh, There is the part where uh, we might call it gratitude, where Paul is giving thanks for the Roman Christians and for their faith. Uh, And then there is his petition. Uh, But before we, we get to that, I want to just point out something that is very basic about prayer. And that is that when we pray to God, there is an order of our prayer. Notice the way Paul says it here. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. When we pray, we pray through Jesus Christ. We pray through our one mediator, the God-man, to our Father by the power of his Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is our point of access by which we are enabled to come before God's throne of grace and to approach him. Uh, He is the one who represents us before God. And I just wanted to point that out because as Christians, we often do things just because it's the way we've always done them or the way we've heard others do them. But Paul is really modeling for us a way to pray, that we pray through Jesus Christ. That's, that's really just an aside uh, to what he's actually talking to them about in the prayer. He's giving thanks to God for them, and particularly that they've put their faith in Jesus Christ, and that that faith of theirs is being proclaimed in all the world. Now, you have to understand that Rome was like the center of the universe in the ancient world. It was the most populous, diverse, influential city in the entire world. You can imagine then how meaningful it would be to other Christian groups and other cities that the gospel had made its way all the way to Rome, that the church had been established in Rome, and that there was a vibrant, believing church of saints in Rome. And you can understand how that might be especially true for Paul, who was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Even though he was not the one to plant this church, uh, even though he did not lay its foundation, its foundation was laid by others, Paul isn't jealous about that. He rejoices in it. He gives thanks to God that there is such a thing as a Roman church. And he tells us that he's been praying for them. He uses actually the language of an oath, as God is my witness, he says. I've been praying for you without ceasing. I've been bringing your names up in my prayers, and I have been giving thanks for you. He thanks God sincerely. But in thanking God, he also is petitioning God. He has this request. He tells them that when he prays, he's always asking God that somehow by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. Paul is not content to simply know about the Roman church. He's not content to simply know that these Roman Christians are there. He wants to know them personally. He wants to meet them. He wants to visit them. He wants to preach the gospel among them. Uh, Maybe you have been able to travel at some point in your life. Um, I haven't done lots of traveling, especially to foreign lands, but I've been to a few places. Uh, I've been to Haiti, and I've preached at our church on Lago Nav down there. And 
remember the warm reception that I had among the saints there and what a delight it was to worship with others whom I don't even speak the language with. I'm sure it was a terrible sermon because, you know, I, I alliterate my sermons and I do them in English for an English audience. And so I went down there and now I have a translator. I have no idea. The alliteration definitely doesn't work in translation. And yet these, these folks were so eager and hungry to hear the gospel. I've been to Ukraine and was warmly welcomed by the Reformed Church in Odessa. Uh, Josh and Elizabeth have told me about their journeys in Prague and, and how nice it was to just have a body of believers, even if you didn't agree with them and everything, to have a body of Christians to worship with. And I think there's something special about knowing that in all the world, the gospel is going forth and it's bearing fruit. If that is true for us, 2,000 years later, how much more true would it have been for Paul and for those early Christians to know that the gospel was going for the first time into the world? That it was shooting out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the world. And to know that the gospel had already made its way to Rome so that there was a church in Rome. And Paul wants to get there. He wants to be with these Roman Christians. And he's praying for it. And even as he prays for it, you can hear his gospel passion. That brings us to our next point. He says in verse 11 and following, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." Uh, the word for here, for I long to see you, connects us back. It tells us the reason why Paul is praying for them and why he is so eager to visit with them. And why is it? What is it that he hopes for when he comes? Well, it's because he is expecting that the Holy Spirit is going to be at work among them in his preaching of the gospel and through their reception of that preaching of the gospel with faith. Now, there's different ways of interpreting what Paul means by imparting some spiritual gift. Is Paul thinking here of those miraculous gifts of the Spirit at work during the apostolic age? I think there is the indefinite language here, some spiritual gift, may lead us to think more generally about Paul's ministry among them, uh, as that itself being a gift from the Holy Spirit, that Christ, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men, and the very first one of those is he gave apostles, right? And Paul is coming as an apostle, and this is his spiritual gift, and he wants to impart these gifts to these brothers. But however we, we think about this, it's clear that Paul is not thinking about something that is one-sided, as though Paul were just going to sort of swoop in the big wig apostle guy that everybody's heard about 
And man, they are really going to benefit when he comes. You should just hear me preach. Wait till you hear me preach the gospel. That's not at all what he says. He, he does not think of himself as a celebrity. He does not think of himself as uh, someone with much ado about them. He comes and he wants to be encouraged by their faith and by their gifts. He knows that he is going to be encouraged by them every bit as much as he is going to encourage them. I once asked a couple who were members of our church, but before they had been members of a very large and well-known church with um, a, a pretty famous preacher. And I just wondered, like, what, what is it like to be pastored by this person? No names being mentioned here. What, what would is, was it like to have him as your pastor? And I was dismayed by their reply because they said, well, we never actually met him. And I thought, you, you never met him? How long were you members there? Three years. And they had never met their pastor. He would come in, he would preach, and he would go off. Now, in one sense, I get it, right? And I'm, I'm not trying to cast stones at large churches. This isn't like the jealousy of, of John's disciples who were complaining that everybody was going to John, right? I understand that pastors of large churches cannot get to know everyone in their congregation, but that just does not seem to carry the same sort of mutual edification that Paul envisions for the church. As much as God uses the gifts of ministers to build up their congregations, he uses the gifts of congregations to build up their ministers. Let me say that again. He uses the gifts of the congregation to build up their ministers, even as you have so often built me up. And I'm thankful for it. And I missed it while I was on sabbatical. Paul is coming to them, hoping that he will impart some spiritual gift and that they will be mutually together, built up in the gospel. In God's providence, he's been prevented from this, but he hopes to come. And he says that I might have some fruit among you. You'll note that the ESV translation uh, says that I might reap some harvest among you. That language of reaping a harvest is not so bad in an, insofar as it goes, but I think it gives us more of the sense of sort of the fields are white unto harvest, but the, the laborers are few. We think of Paul coming for the sake of making conversions. But actually, the language that Paul uses in Greek, he uses this word karpon. The word karpon or karpos is fruit. He wants to bear fruit among them. I don't think Paul is so much thinking about making converts, though he certainly expects that will happen in his preaching ministry. But here he's thinking about preaching the gospel to those who are already Christians. How many of you know that as Christians, you still need the gospel as much as the day you were converted? 
you know that you still need to hear God's word of comfort to you. You know that you still need to be built up. You know that the gospel still needs to bear fruit among you. That, I think, is what Paul is saying. And he feels himself under obligation to do this, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You can really hear his passion there, his eagerness to preach the gospel because he's confident in the gospel. He knows that the gospel is going to do its work in the hearts of people and it's going to bear fruit in their lives. And so he has this sense of duty and obligation. He uses actually the language of debt. He is indebted. He's indebted because God has given him this commission. He is the Lord's servant, the Lord's apostle. He has been set apart for this mission and with this message. He's set apart for the gospel of God. And so it doesn't matter where they have come from, how they have ended up in the Roman Empire. They've probably come from all over. Many of them would be natural-born citizens. Uh, Many of them would be slaves, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, as he says elsewhere. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Uh, By Greeks, he doesn't just mean those who were born in Greece. He means upper-class society, those who were on the the, the top rung of the social ladder. Barbarians were anyone outside of the the major nations, right? Outside of Greece, who, who had their own tribes in disparate lands. They were often uneducated. And I think there's a parallelism here where he says, Greeks, sort of the top of the social ladder, barbarians, the bottom of the social ladder, uh, the wise and the foolish, we would probably say the educated and the uneducated. But Paul's point is very simple. This is, is sort of a, a, a Romanism, a Roman way of saying everybody, regardless of race, class, or education, everybody needs the gospel, and I'm eager to preach the gospel to everybody to make it as clear as I can. Okay. We get that you're eager, Paul. You're passionate about this. But why? What is it about the gospel that drives you so hard? Why can't you let this go? Why is it the thing that you're always talking about? And that brings us to our last point today, the gospel power. And just before we, we read these verses uh, in 16 through 18, I just want you to listen for that little word for. You're going to hear it at the beginning of three clauses. And just pay attention to the way that it sort of strings together these various clauses as Paul gives us the reason he is so passionate about the gospel. All right, are you ready? Here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wants us to know, first and foremost, that the message of the gospel is not something that he is ashamed about, and it's not something that they should be ashamed about. Now, why does he lead out on that foot? Well, he leads out on that foot because very clearly, this gospel message 
would be considered by many in Rome to be shameful, to be disgraceful, to be actually absurd. After all, you think about what the message of the gospel is. The very center of the gospel message is that Jesus died on the cross. A message that Paul says elsewhere is foolishness to many. And to to understand why is because you have to understand that crucifixion was a distinctly Roman form of torture and execution. It wasn't the Jewish form of execution. That was stoning. It was Roman. Jesus had been tortured and killed by Roman soldiers under the authority of Pilate, a Roman governor. And even among the Romans, crucifixion was considered a base and cruel form of execution. It was the, it was the, the form of execution that they reserved for the lowest of the low, for, for slaves and traitors. In fact, according to Roman law, uh, a Roman citizen could not be crucified apart from a direct edict from the emperor himself. That, that's how bad it was considered. Even as a means of, cruci- of execution, it was below them. And yet here come these Christians, right? And this message of the gospel that's spreading throughout the Roman Empire, and the whole message of the gospel centers on this obscure Galilean Jew who was executed on a cross. How could that possibly be good news? The good news of Christianity, much like it does today, seemed absurd, it seemed ridiculous, it seemed even comical. And it was to the Romans. In fact, um, one of my favorite archaeological discoveries is an ancient piece of graffiti that is on, on the Palatine Hill in Rome. You have this wall of graffiti In uh, Gainesville, you drive by it, you know, down on your way to the university down there. The Romans had their graffiti too. And in this ancient uh, piece of graffiti, uh, sketched and etched onto the wall is a picture of Jesus, except it's not Jesus. It's a donkey hanging on a cross with a young man bowing down before it. And then inscribed under the graffiti, it says, Aleximenos worships his God. That's the way the Romans thought about the absurdity of Christianity. That it was something to be ashamed of, something to be disdained. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. And you shouldn't be ashamed of it. Because this message is actually the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God. I remember hearing a sermon growing up where the pastor made this point that the Greek word that stands behind power is the word dunamis. And it's the same word, actually, from where we we get our word dynamite. And I remember, and he was making this point that, that this power is like dynamite. It's, it's really powerful. And I remember thinking as a kid, yeah, man, that is, that's so powerful. 
But actually, that sells this power so far short. Um, because the power that he says is the power of God. The power of God. John Murray says it is the omnipotent power of God that is on display in the salvation of sinners. Don't think about dynamite. Think about a nuclear explosion, right? And then whatever all the nuclear explosions are, and then above that, the infinite power of God. That is the power of the gospel. It is a power that can do things that no explosive power could ever do. Explosions, I think, as we have seen this week, cannot change hearts. They certainly could not make a Gentile-hating Jew like Paul, whose whole mission was to kill Christians, to be transformed in an instant so that now he loved the Gentiles and desired their salvation, and vice versa. No amount of explosions could make a Palestinian love a Jew or a Roman love a Jew. Only the power of the gospel can do that. Only the power of the gospel can affect something so profound. But how does it do it? What is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful? And we get Paul's answer in verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is explaining here how it is that through the preaching of the gospel, God is able to save everyone who believes. And the reason is that because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The, the gospel is a revelation of this righteousness of God. But what does that mean? I cannot tell you how many pages have been written on what that means. But let me just say a few things about it. First, we need to say something about what our minds might immediately hear. That the righteousness of God is what we might call an attribute of God. That is often the way we think of the righteousness of God. And it's often used that way in the Bible. It's going to be used that way in Romans, uh, in one part of Romans 3, for example. In the same way we, that we might say that this pulpit is brown and might speak of the brownness of this pulpit. So we might say God is righteous and we might speak of the righteousness of God. And in that case, what we mean by the righteousness of God would be God's own commitment to his character, to this sort of eternal self-commitment to always do what is right. Is God righteous? Absolutely, 100%. But that causes a big problem for unrighteous sinners, doesn't it? If God always does what is right, then how should he treat the unrighteous? Look down just one verse in your Bible where the righteousness of God that is revealed is paralleled by the wrath of God that is revealed. 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the way that Martin Luther initially understood this phrase, and you can see why it terrified him. He says in uh, his copy of Table Talk, these words, righteousness and the righteousness of God, struck my conscience as flashes of lightning. They frightened me every time I heard them, because if God is righteous, then he punishes the unrighteous. Is that what this means here? That the gospel is just the revelation that God punishes sinners? And if that is the gospel, if that is the gospel, how is that good news for anybody? I'm going to go around and preach the gospel that God punishes the unrighteous. But that cannot be the meaning here because Paul's clearly linking this righteousness of God to something which is received by faith. He says it three different ways. It is for everyone who believes. It is from faith for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. None of us receive God's own inherent righteousness. Right? We don't become God in the gospel. So that cannot be what he means. Rather, what Paul means here by the righteousness of God What is revealed here in the gospel is a righteousness that comes from God, that has its source in God, and a righteousness that is therefore approved by God. That is abundantly clear when you turn just two pages in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, where he's describing the effect of the law to show the whole world that they are condemned under sin. And then he says in in chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And now here's a description of it. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He goes back and forth between God who is righteous in and of himself, and the righteousness that he gives as a gift to his people. What the gospel reveals is the way in which a God of perfect righteousness found a way to save unrighteous sinners through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross may well seem like foolishness, but do you see what God has done at the cross? He took all of the sin and all of the unrighteousness of his people. And just take a moment to contemplate your sins this week. Your wicked thoughts. Your wicked passions. Your wicked actions. Your lusts. Your lies. Your anger. Your rebellion. Your idolatry. Your coveting. All of the sins 
in all of the ways that you have sinned, and he took all of those and he counted them as though they belonged to his son. He put his son up on the cross in your place. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation just means that he became the sacrifice upon which all of God's anger and all of God's wrath for sin was poured out and satisfied. Because God is righteous, because he is eternally committed to do what is right, he could not simply ignore sin. The gospel tells us it will not be ignored. He's punished it. He's dealt with it. He's unleashed his holy wrath against it. And his justice has been satisfied at the cross. And that's why that Paul can say that this shows us his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In the gospel, God is revealing how he can maintain his perfect justice on the one hand, how he can be righteous, how he can be just, and at the same time, how he can save the unrighteous, be the justifier, the one who, who declares righteous, even though they are sinners, apart from their works and how those two cannot be in conflict. That's what the gospel reveals. That's why the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, because the righteousness that the gospel reveals is the righteousness of Jesus Christ for us. It is the perfect righteousness of our Savior. Calvin put it this way, Since he regards unrighteousness with so much hatred, he therefore intimates that we cannot obtain salvation otherwise than from the gospel, since nowhere else does God reveal to us his righteousness. That, my friends, is why Paul is so passionate about the gospel. Because he understood that it was the only hope for sinners. That's why it was good news. If we know anything at all, we know that we're sinners, right? We know that God's law condemns us. As Paul is going to say later, one of the reasons for God's law is uh, to show us that every mouth should be stopped and that the whole world should be accountable to God. For by the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It shuts your mouth. It's like God is saying, just stop talking. Stop trying to justify your actions. Stop trying to prove that you're good. You're not. Put your hand over your mouth and admit it. Own your guilt. And if it were not enough that God's law tells us that, our own conscience tells us that. But it's just there under the weight of the law and under the weight of our own guilty conscience that the gospel meets us. That the gospel comes with our hand over our mouth, guilty and condemned, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder it was Paul's passion. No wonder it became Luther's passion. When Luther finally understood the gospel, he said this. He said, 
Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of all of Scripture became apparent to me. And just as intensely as I had hated that expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised it as such a pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. That, my dear friends, is what I pray it becomes for us. That this knowledge of the righteousness of God, that God, because of the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, is not counting to men their sins, but that he is counting to them the righteous perfections of their Savior, that righteous revelation of good news that is received by faith, from faith to faith, the righteous shall live by faith, that that is our way into paradise. And that should make us passionate about the gospel. May the Lord use this more and more in our lives. And we're going to go through Romans, and we are going to look at this gospel. We are going to unfold it. We're going to see that it is, in, in many ways this concept of the righteousness of God forms the structure of the book. Because Paul's going to go on from here and he's going to just show us and demonstrate how nobody is righteous. How the law condemns everybody under sin. And then he's going to apply the gospel salve to that. As he shows us the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel. And then he's going to show us the implications of the righteousness of God in our lives. And so, beloved, my hope is that you would come to appreciate more the grace of the gospel in your life, that it would bear fruit among you, and that it would become the very gate of paradise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel that you did not skirt around sin, that you did not ignore it, that you found a way to maintain your righteousness in the forgiveness of unrighteous sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we wonder that you would do this for us, that you would give up your own son in order to claim us for yourselves, to make us your servants. But Lord, we are thankful. And Lord, we pray that you would once again apply this, this gospel salve to our wounded consciences and that you would, in applying it to us, make it to heal us, that we might live for you and love you and actually pursue your righteousness. So we, we ask all of these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. The very same gospel that is preached from the pulpit is also proclaimed in the sacraments. And it centers, once again, on the foolishness of the cross, on what seems in the eyes of the world to be absurd. Even this meal would seem to be absurd. This is not exactly a feast meal in the eyes of the world. This isn't like Thanksgiving Day where you eat and you, you gorge yourself and fill up. You're, we're going to pass out a little crusty piece of bread and this little tiny shot of wine. And yet, 
This is heaven's most glamorous and glorious feast for you. It is going to gorge your soul in a way that no earthly meal can. Because what it reminds you of and what it it brings to you is the reminder of Christ's righteous perfections for you and his substitutionary death on your behalf. If the world portrays Jesus as a donkey, so be it. He is coming again to judge the world in righteousness. He is coming again to pour out his wrath and power and to make it known. But today he pours out on us his grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness. And that is something that as we come to this table, we are to be mindful of. That this, these elements, the bread and the, and the wine, represent the full and final forgiveness of our sins and the justification that we have through our Savior. They are his body and blood for us. And so as you come to this table today, come and receive these gifts with faith, trusting in your Savior, resting in his grace to you, and knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you are cleansed, and that he loves you. And so as we come to this table today, let's be mindful of that. But there's also a warning in this meal because the symbols do represent judgment. They are a picture of God's wrath and judgment poured out on a man. And if you are not trusting in Christ, then what these symbols actually represent is that that judgment of God is to one day be poured out on you. But there is a way to escape that wrath and judgment. And I'm eager to tell you about it. It's through the gospel. It's through this message that Jesus Christ saves sinners and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you are not walking in his, in his ways, if you have not professed your faith in him, if you, if you don't belong to his church, then I just very humbly ask you to let these elements pass you by today. But I would also call upon you and even plead with you, as the Apostle Paul says, to be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would use these ordinary elements for this holy use. Lord, as we come now to your table, we're mindful of what you have done. We have just been reminded in in so many ways of the glory of the good news, this which is your very power unto salvation. And we pray that it would be powerful even now as we receive this bread and this wine, that you would use it in our hearts and in our minds to confirm in us this grand and glorious hope. And Lord, we pray that resting here, uh, we would know afresh a sense of your love and have that sense of joy in the Holy Spirit and have that peace of conscience which can only come through the good news. Lord, help us to receive these things with faith. Give us faith to receive in this way. For we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.